0: Thank you for your support. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Shamal Idris about shifting organizational strategies and the search for common ground to transform violent conflict. Shamal Idris, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure to have you. Where are you joining us from today?
1: I'm in Washington, D.C. as the headquarters of my organization.
0: Wonderful. I love the D.C. area. Um, I used to go back a couple times a year uh, for various work engagements, and then the pandemic happened and that kind of stalled, and I haven't been back in a few years. So I need to get back because it's a wonderful area. Uh, Hopefully, the weather is treating you well. Uh, I'm south of Salt Lake City in Utah, and we have been dumped on this winter. So much snow, which is a good thing. We need the the snow, but uh, man, oh man, we've had a lot of snow this year. I,
1: I had the opposite pandemic experience. I actually got to know D- DC a lot better with the pandemic because I actually started exercising again, riding my bike. Turns out the DC, Maryland, Virginia area is great for, great for bike riding, lots of good trails, so... Wonderful. But I went skiing in Utah, so I didn't realize how much snow you all had. Maybe we can get out there at some point.
0: Oh, you should! You should. It's a great ski year. Like we're crazy above the norm, uh, the normal snow averages and snowpack. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Uh, it is a pleasure to have you, and I'm excited mm-hmm. to talk with you about your organization's Search for Common Ground, and we're going to be talking about some organizational strategy shifts uh, in in what your organization's been doing. Uh, I think it'll be a really fun conversation. As we get started, I wanted to share Shamal's Bio with everybody. Shamal Idris is the chief executive officer of Search for Common Ground, the world's largest dedicated. Peace building organization. In his current capacity as CEO and in his previous capacities as president, chief operating officer, and Burundi country director, he has led searches efforts to end violent conflict in more than 35 countries globally, including some of the most devastating conflict zones in the Middle East and Africa. Uh, tremendous. And I could really go on and on with your bio. You've done so many really cool things. I'm going to pause there. Is there anything else you would specifically like to highlight? Or share with me or the audience by way of your background or personal context before we dive on into the conversation.
1: No, I grew up in this in this kind. I grew up in the states uh, as the son of immigrants, and I've got two teenage kids, so uh, we've got a lot going on. A conflict in our own house, but we're managing it pretty well.
0: Yeah, well, and and I think that's an important point. Uh, you know, your organization is focusing on geopolitical conflicts and and those sorts of things, peace building. Um, you know, in a in a kind of a big scope and scale. But the principles of peace building and conflict resolution have application in homes and communities, uh, in our neighborhoods, of course. It it has applications within the workforce and within our organizations. And so I I hope, you know, as we learn more about your organization, the cool stuff that you're doing, I hope listeners will also think about how these principles apply over into organizational settings and those sorts of things, because they absolutely do apply and cross over. And I think there's a lot of cool things that we can gain from, from your perspective and your experience today.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's great. I'm still learning myself. But yeah, these things apply. And you can't lead an organization like this and see colleagues in places like Myanmar and Afghanistan, you know, reaching across dividing lines, dealing with incredible challenges and sometimes threats to their lives and then not be forced to reflect on how you deal with conflict in your own life. You know, even, you know, the obnoxious yeah. driver or how you're dealing with, with disputes with your, with your spouse or whatever it might be. So yeah, it's very personal as well as political.
0: Yeah, for sure. Wonderful. Well, why don't you start by telling us a little bit more specifically about Search for Common Ground, the work that you do. I teased it a little bit in your bio, um, but open that up for us a little bit.
1: Yeah so a lot of people uh, a lot of people don't know what you mean when you say peace building or if they think they know what you mean they usually have a pretty outdated and kind of negative sense like it's holding hands and singing songs and it's kind of it's nice in theory but it's not practical in the real world uh in in effect in in reality over the last 40 years especially um peace building has emerged as a as a real practice with a lot of lessons learned. Um, um, and my organization is the largest of the sort of non-governmental organizations in the world doing peace building. Uh, we maintain about a thousand full-time staff working in more than 30 countries. And more than 90% of those teams uh, are not only local to the communities in which they work, and I'll get to that in a second, but importantly, they're also in their composition, they represent the dividing lines. So you can imagine, you know, if you're dealing with a dispute anywhere, anywhere, if you're dealing with Police community relations in Salt Lake City, where you are, or you know, whatever, it would help a lot if on your team, strategizing and figuring out what you're going to do about it, you have retired police officers, youth activists, maybe former gang members, you know, whatever, and they're sitting together figuring out how are we going to rebuild trust between these divided communities, right? Um, And so that's what our teams look like everywhere in the world. They're multi sectarian teams in Lebanon. They are multi-ethnic teams in East Africa. Um, and here in the United States, they cut across the racial and political dividing lines that increasingly have polarized you know our society. Uh, and so that's what our people look like. And then, in terms of what they do to answer that question, you know I think maybe the easiest way to break it down is sort of a three step process, which we we call the common ground approach, which is basically our methodology. Uh, and in three words, it is trust, collaboration. And breakthroughs. And, and so the first two words work in sort of a cycle with each other. What we found in really divided societies is that, you know, dialogue is necessary, but it's insufficient. Um, in order to really build trust, you need to generate cooperation. Sometimes say that the, you know, the, the best way to build trust is through shared success. Get people cooperating on something, common concerns, common hopes, common business ventures, whatever it might be, because that process of cooperating deepens their relationship and deepens the trust. And the more you do that, the more you can start getting beyond what might seem at first irrelevant cooperation to things that start to get at some of the real drivers of conflict. So I can't tell you how many times around the world, literally we have organized soccer tournaments because it's the only thing that will get youth and police doing something other than fighting each other, right? In certain communities. Um, But those tournaments are never an end in themselves. The whole purpose is to build the relationships where maybe after the third tournament, some of them start sitting and talking together about what's going on between their communities, and maybe that evolves into a bit of a working group that starts strategizing and thinking about other things they could do together to finally end, you know, some of the distrust and the violence and the things going on between them. And that's where you get the third step uh, ultimately, which is breakthroughs. And uh, at a large level, you know, our organization has generated some wonderful results. Uh, we, you know, the we 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 were we, we held you know secret meetings between. Israeli and Jordanian generals for years that uh, ended up producing language that word for word ended up in the official peace accord between Israel and Jordan in 1994. Uh, we were credited with helping to prevent genocide in Burundi after the genocide in neighboring Rwanda. Um, we um, you know, were nominated by the Quakers for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2018. Um, and in a lot of countries, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Sri Lanka, Macedonia, a lot of places that have either come to the brink of war and pulled back or have been able to emerge from terrible civil war into much more stable societies, our teams have been very deeply involved and credited with with contributing substantially. So that's basically what we do and what we hope it will add up to in the end.
0: No, oh, I appreciate that. And you shared a bit about your approach and methodology within this really complex, you know, messy world that we're in. And transforming violent conflict is not an easy thing. If it was easy you know we won't need all the organizations like yours um to try to to deal with this uh the, these are complex problems that are often generational um they, they perpetuate and self-perpetuate themselves they have to be disrupted it's 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 a challenging thing to do and building on the cooperative piece i think it's so so interesting mm-hmm. before I ask you about the impact piece that you were just referring to um, I just wanted to make a tie back to an organizational setting. Now we all have probably experienced this. Um, You're you're talking about, you know, general societal kind of conflicts and, and whatnot um, in a lot of what you're doing, but we've all been in those organizations where you have different camps. Um, There's all the political battles happening within the organization. It seems like you're spending most of your time rather than like doing your actual work And like doing cool, creative things to bring value to the market that you're just like playing the political games within the organization. And there's like it's like high school again, like people are undermining each other and bullying each other. And there's toxic toxicity in the toxic environment um, that just makes for a really crummy place to be and to work. Uh, And my guess is we've all been there to some extent where we've seen that happen. And how do you undo that? Because trust at that point, trust is gone. Trust is eroded. Um, You know, and how how can you start to collaborate and cooperate with people that you just don't trust them at all? And you feel like they don't have um, good motives. You don't feel like they're um, good actors coming to the table to, to cooperate in, in really meaningful ways. They have some sort of an agenda. They're going to try to undermine you, blah, blah, blah. Right. That's all the stuff that's going on um, in the minds of people in these types of circumstances. And, and how do you disrupt that finding ways, like you said, for small wins, small, finding common ground and finding small ways for people to reconnect with and rebuild that trust over time is essential. And if you can't do that, that toxicity will just perpetuate itself and and usually grow and get to the point where, I mean, the, the company implodes, or you're going to have to do some massive kind of restructuring and getting a whole bunch of people out of there and bringing new people in, etc. Of course, that's not something that we always have the option for in civil society. But uh, within organizations, that's something that sometimes happens. Uh, So anyways, I just just to highlight your your methodology and approach, I think it absolutely 100% applies within an organizational setting as well.
1: I think so. You, I think you probably know this research better than I do. But there's been so much really interesting research, you know, produced in the Harvard Business Review and the MIT Management Guide, you know, around the fact that um, you know the diverse teams tend to be the most high-performing teams. But that research oftentimes leaves out that the worst-performing teams are also diverse teams. The real key distinction is trust, right? So, you know, if you take a group, any group of people, and you want to get them working together on a common goal, whether it's a company. Uh, or a nonprofit or a community association, whatever it is. One of the things that neuroscientists have demonstrated is that when when people, when it's not a very diverse group, we, both, we all went to the same summer camps. We speak the same language with the same accents. We look the same. We come from similar backgrounds or whatever. There's a lot of shorthand. You know, we're talking to each other. We basically have that baseline of trust. You know, it's kind of easy and those teams can perform well. Once you get a much more diverse team together, we have really different backgrounds. We look different. Different religions, different races, different political perspectives, or whatever. A lot of your mental energy is spent. Even even the energy I realize is spent wondering: Is if I say this, am I going to offend her? Am I you know? You just you're kind of checking yourself. There's all that energy going into. Um, but what they found is that if you take the time to build trust with that team. That diverse team with trust is going to way outperform all other teams, including the not diverse team, because you're bringing all these different perspectives and approaches to a common goal. Of course, you're going to get more creative solutions, more sustainable approaches. So that's just a statement on kind of what teams perform best. And I think you can take that to society as a whole. You know, you you can have a relatively stable society that's not particularly uh, diverse. Um, but if you can build a society that has both diversity and, and protects and builds that trust a- across the, the the society or the company, it's going to be better for everybody, right? So in terms of methodology, I, I can't stress enough, you meet people where they are. Like It's just really basic. It, it's, um you know, if you're working in rural Texas trying to bring together people across liberal conservative divides, you might ask, well, where is the one place that people still come together? Oh, it happens to be the Saturday football game. Great. We're going to do something there. Um, You know, you, 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 you or where is there a common interest? These people might be divided on 50 different things. But you know what? They're all really concerned about what's going on in the school system because it's a serious issue here and they all have kids or whatever it might be. So you try to find out where is, you know, our motto is understand the differences, act on the commonalities. So we're not just kumbaya. Hey, let's all just get along. That first phrase, understand the differences, is actually really important because sometimes the differences are very important to us. But where you want to foster cooperation and action is around those commonalities. And I guess the last thing I'd share with you, because I, I, you know, you talk about organizational management, and I, the first time I came across this, it was, uh, it was actually in a Harvard Business Review article. It had nothing to do with peace and conflict, but as I read it, it was the this was more than a decade ago. It was the best articulation of part of our methodology that I'd ever seen anywhere. So I don't know if you've heard of the field of appreciative inquiry, but um, you know the, the basic upshot of appreciative inquiry, and it's very well-researched field, um, uh, is that the worst way to change behavior is to punish bad behavior. Uh, that the best way to change behavior in a company or a community, whatever it might be, uh, is to identify, amplify, incentivize every step towards the desired behavior, even if it's a really incremental step. And I see this as a dad. You know, if I yell at my daughter for not putting her shoes in the bin that I got for that specific purpose she's a lot less likely to change, you know, than if I praise her like crazy, because she put one shoe in today, she's more likely to put two in tomorrow. And, and we see this that celebrating and identifying the kind of behavior you want to see, even if it's just a tiny step in that direction is a lot more effective than just bashing people for not behaving the way that you you want them to behave. And so our approach is very appreciative. We're always looking for the assets in a community, you might say in a company. Um, And so the way what that looks like is, let's say you go into a community that's at at war with each other, literally, uh, where there's an ethnic divide. We won't just ask what's wrong, et cetera. We'll say, is there anyone across this ethnic divide who you trust? Um, If it's an out-of-control police force, we might say, is there one captain or even a beat cop who actually has good relationships with the community? Um, In a corrupt government, we'll say, is there one minister who, who you actually feel like is trying to serve the people? And one of the things that we found, John, in every setting where you ask those leading kind of appreciative questions where you're trying to find out where is there some positive stuff going on here? Who do you, Where do you have trust even across the divides? 100% of the time, 100% of the time, you get lots of answers, lots of examples. And it's the kind of thing when a society or a company is dysfunctional that you won't find out without asking those questions because people just ignore them or they think, ah, oh, sure, he's one colonel trying to do the right thing, but he's in a totally out of control military. What difference can he make? And so you ignore him. And so we always start where people are we take an appreciative approach, and, and and we start wherever that common interest or or concern might might get them cooperating with each other.
0: Yeah, and you're describing another way to frame this is an asset based approach, right? Uh, in, in, instead of an, a deficit based approach, yeah. um, which you know exactly what you just said. It, it's so much more powerful. Uh, to, to get people um, to work collaboratively when we take that kind of an approach and we value the input that we're getting from everyone involved in the process, right? Yeah. That will help to rekindle that trust. Now, a few minutes ago, you started to talk about um, the impact piece. Um, that's really tricky. I mean, me- measuring impact for any organization is a, is a tricky thing. Maybe tell us a little bit about how you go about doing that within peace building, which I imagine is extra tricky.
1: Part of why it's extra tricky is uh, building peace is a complex process. There are a lot of factors, a lot of causes and effects. So pulling them out and saying, well, this is the one you want to measure is tough. Second, it's tough to prove a negative. Okay, because of this intervention, there wasn't a massacre. There would have been without it. That's tough to prove, right? You're asking this question though, at a really exciting time, not just for me, but for the entire peace building field. We spent the, la- the better part of the last three years developing an impact framework uh, based on consultations with scholars, peer organizations, very importantly, with the people in the communities where we work around the world, more than 30 countries. Um, and and my sense is that our whole field is at the cusp of a really critical shift in how you measure peace building. And the best analogy I can think of is the medical field, right? So in the medical field, there was a very really big jump in human health when the medical community shifted from simply treating diseases to actually promoting and fostering healthy lifestyles. And people started thinking, oh, what are the things that keep people from getting sick in the first place? So our treatment here is not just when they are dragged into the emergency room. Um, And they looked at things like how much people sleep and whether they drink and smoke and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, a very key pillar of that shift in the medical community was the identification of eight vital signs for a healthy human body. There's so much consensus on this now that if you go to a doctor anywhere in the world, the first thing they're going to do is take your eight vital signs. What's your pulse? What's your heart rate? Do you feel any pain, et cetera? And those vital signs will tell them whether a further intervention is needed or more testing. There's no equivalent in terms of what the vital signs are of a healthy society. You know, what are the things that you measure that will tell you when there's a crisis, a pandemic, an earthquake, uh, an act of violence, What are the things you should measure that will tell you whether that society is likely to react to that crisis by coming together and staying cohesive or likely to descend into polarization and even violence? Um, Because conflict is not something to be avoided or prevented. It's just natural. It's like it's just there's conflict is like friction. It's going to happen. Things are going to happen. Just like no matter what you do, you're going to get exposed. Your human bodies and get exposed to infections and viruses. The question is, are you healthy enough to rally? Or are you likely to descend into a severe sickness, right? So we looked at, uh, without going into all the details of it, we identified five key themes um, of a healthy society. And, and don't get me wrong, this is not all the good things. If you want to list all the things that would make the kind of society, this is really, what do you look at to determine whether society is likely to fall apart or come together you know, in the face of conflict? And the five things are as follows. Um, one is trust between communities. Hutu, Tutsi, Muslim, Jewish, Republican, Democrat, whatever your society is. What's the trust between communities, sometimes called horizontal cohesion, right? The second one is trust for institutions, sometimes called vertical cohesion. Do people trust the institutions that govern and serve them? A lot of these are the government. Do you trust the police? Do you trust the judicial system? Do you trust the CDC in their guidance on COVID, right? But they're also, um, do you trust the media? You know, it's not just government. So do you trust the institutions that govern and serve you? That's the second measure. The third is physical violence, because physical violence tends to be getting more physical violence. So we ask people, you know, we both look at, you know, levels of physical violence, but we also try to understand whether people feel safe walking home at night, basic things like this. The fourth is very subjective. It's people's sense of agency. Do you feel like what you do makes the least bit of difference in terms of your well-being, your children's future, your, your community's You know, well-being and protection? Do people feel like they have any agency that they can make any difference? Or are they given up all hope, basically? And the fifth is resourcing. Where are society's resources going to? Are they going towards reactive, kind of like that emergency room example? Are they going to more police, more prisons, more top-down controls? Or are they going to some of the things that build healthy community, that build understanding, that prevent problems before they descend into violence? And so those are the five things that we measure everywhere. And the last piece of this that I would share with you is we get the data for those five things from three key sources. And the medical analogy applies here, too. The first is you ask people in the communities, just like you'd ask the patient, are you feeling better? <laughs> you know, we ask people, what would progress look like to you? You know, and it's really different in every community. In Myanmar, we were told when people start building with cinder blocks instead of mud, they feel much more secure. They're likely not going to they, they feel like they're probably not going to have to, you know, suddenly leave their homes. Okay, that's different from what we would get in other places, but that's really relevant. So you ask people, you know, in the communities. Second, you ask experts, just like you'd ask the doctor. You've seen thousands of cases. What do you think? You know, so you ask people who are practicing peace builders on the front lines, our staff, our peers, um, scholars who study things. So you ask experts. And the third is data. There are some things where there is objective, you know, verifiable data. You know, there are UN offices that keep You know very regularly updated data on levels of physical violence everywhere in the world we use those data sets so those are the three things that we use to populate and those are the five things we look at and and to go back to how we started it's not surprising maybe that two of those five things go to trust do we trust each other and do we trust the institutions that govern and serve us and that's trust is sort of the the most critical currency for the stability of any society.
0: I note the time, and I. this is tragic because we're running out of time and I just want to keep going and going. <laughs> um, but we're going to have to, I think, start to wrap things up because I know you're busy and we'll have other things you need to get on with. But I would love to have you back so we could continue the conversation because I think there's so much more uh, that we could explore together. Um, as we start to wrap things up for today, I just wanted to give you a chance to share with the audience how they can connect with you, find out more about Search for Common Ground, um, and then give us a final word on the topic for today.
1: Yeah, so uh, our website is www.sfcg, as in Search for Common Ground, sfcg.org. My Twitter handle is at Shamil Idris, S-H-A-M-I-L-I-D-R-I-S-S. And um, you know the the last piece that we didn't get to today, which I'd love to get into with you uh, on a future conversation, is uh is we just did something that happens all too seldom in the nonprofit sector, which is that we announced a merger that is going to really accelerate um, both our and the other organization, Preemptive Love Coalition, that our impact on the world. Um, and any of your followers who participate in or support nonprofits will probably have a sense that. Every social cause in the world, you know, is populated with a lot of nonprofits, oftentimes small nonprofits competing for resources rather than joining together to, to, to have a, a greater and bigger impact together. So I'm very proud that we've done that. Uh, and it's a really exciting time for us for that reason and everything else we talked about today.
0: Yeah, that really is important. And w- we do talk about various social impact topics on this podcast from time to time. Uh, and we weren't able to quite get into this. Um, today with you, but it's, it's really important. As you note, there are so many well-meaning individuals, so many really well-meaning nonprofits. Um, a lot of times there's a lot of replication, lots of similar nonprofits doing similar things, competing for the same pot of resources. And so finding opportunities to collaborate within the nonprofit world, to have these types of uh, partnerships or even mergers so that we can collectively accomplish more and have a bigger impact is a really big deal. It's not a small thing. And and I definitely want to explore that with you more uh, in a future conversation. This has just been a a tremendous pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time. I encourage the audience to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Shamil and his team can do for you. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week.